special week as we lead into Easter. Um, Today is that Palm Sunday as we've been talking about all morning and we remember that Jesus entered into Jerusalem um, as he prepares for his death. He knew what was going on and he enters into Jerusalem waiting for that to happen. And the Apostle Paul, or the Apostle John actually, sorry, picks this up because at this point there's a bit of a shift in the story of Jesus. There's a bit of a shift in the mood. And John sees this. You see, in our, in our Bibles, we see that it, the Gospel of John is written in two parts. I'm not going to go through all of John's Gospel this morning. Don't, don't worry. But the first part of John's Gospel from chapters 1 through to 12 is all about John presenting Jesus. It could be called the Book of Signs. And in this first 12 chapters of John's Gospel, John presents all of these miracles, all of these signs that show who Jesus is. Behold, the Son of God. And so we have these miraculous signs. It's all exciting stuff. This miracle worker, um, such that the world has never, ever seen before, is, has come. And he's healing the lame man. He's healing the blind man. He's, he's healing the dumb He's, he's raising the dead to life. He's, he's giving hope to all around about him. And it ends with Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. Um, doesn't sound all that grand really, but, but this is symbolic of a Messiah coming. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey with the celebration of the crowds. Let me read very quickly to you out of John chapter 12. It says, The next day the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And so they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. And John could be excused for leaving the story there. The king has come. You can imagine the rest. But he doesn't leave it there. Because there's a few more twists and turns in the story of Jesus. Some plot twists that no one sees coming. So as we move into the second part of John's gospel, there's a change in the mood, in the focus. It's the week that is leading into Jesus' death and it's all about bringing glory to Jesus and bringing glory to his Father. Let me pray and then we're going to open up to John chapter 13. I'm going to look at a little bit of this second part of John's story about Jesus. Lord, we thank you so much. Um, We're amazed um, at you and who you are. You are the Son of God. We believe that. That you came down to this earth to live with us, to ultimately save us. And so we sit here today, Lord. Um, We pray that as we open your word, look into a little bit more of your story, that you would speak to us by your spirit. Move us, we pray, Lord, today so that we can serve you better today and tomorrow. And we'd ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've got your Bibles, I want you to open them up to John chapter 13. Because this is an account that John refers to in his gospel. And we're going to read from verse 1. It's about Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. Now it was just before the Passover feast 
Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave the world and to go to his Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. That statement there is an incredible statement. He had loved his followers, yet they still had no idea of the extent of the love that Jesus had for them, and Jesus was about to demonstrate that. Verse 2, he says, The evening meal was being prepared or served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you will have no part with me. And then, then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. You and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said that not everyone was clean. When he'd finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked. You call me teacher. And Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do, and as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a master greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. There's a little bit of a conjecture around as to when this event actually occurred. Was it the Passover feast, the Last Supper? That's recorded in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke. I don't want to go into um, the arguments today, but I think it actually does make sense to understand that this actually happened at the Last Supper. See, Matthew, Mark and Luke's account is what we often quote around the communion table, where we focus on the communion elements, the bread and the wine. Um, Jesus' flesh being broken, Jesus' blood being spilt. But John here, it doesn't record those details because the Christians around already knew about those from Matthew, Mark and Luke's Gospels. So John focuses in on something slightly different that happened at this meal. He focuses in on this being the Passover meal. And this is where foot washing actually becomes really significant. You know, I get into trouble sometimes at home um, for coming into our house with dirty feet. I might have been working out in the garden or mowing the lawn and I've got dirt and grass all over my feet and probably up my legs. Sometimes I've been doing other things and I've got sawdust or all sorts of things all over me. Um, and um, I'm not allowed inside the house because I might mess up Deanna's clean house. And that's probably okay. There's conditional love there, I know, but um, it's probably okay in that situation. Um, 
But while I have to wash my feet in order to be clean, to be able to enter in, um, you know, foot washing was something that was very commonly experienced in Jesus' day. It was a a daily ritual. Uh, You see, much like we wash our hands before a meal, people in Jesus' day would wash their feet before they entered the house and and before they sat down for a meal. You you can imagine the dusty and the dirty roads back in Jesus' time. Um, There were no concrete roads back then, no bitumen roads, no paths like that. Um, just dusty paths that were worn into the landscape that humans and animals walked. Now, now the mere fact um, that the main form of transport back then was by foot, not cars or buses or taxis or bikes or anything like that, they ha- weren't around, but it was by foot and the main form of footwear was sandals, not closed-in shoes like you and I enjoy, as well as the fact that there were no campaigns around the city councils or the like to pick up your dog poo or your donkey poo or your camel poo or whatever it was in little nice plastic bags. None of that existed. And so, of course, um, there was an inevitable conclusion that feet got pretty dirty. And so washing feet was really important, especially because people typically reclined to eat their meals um, around a low table. They didn't sit at a table and chairs like you and I with feet under the table, out of sight, out of mind. No, they'd be lying down and literally your dirty feet would be in your face. Well, actually, correction, in someone else's face. Um, And so it probably wasn't too pleasant. So you would typically wash your feet before you ate. Or as you entered a person's home to show respect and, and probably correct, again, it wasn't you that washed your feet, but someone else would wash your feet. This was particularly important when you were entertaining guests. It was a sign of honour. Remember Jesus when he went to Simon the Pharisee's home? His feet wasn't washed. And that was interpreted as a gesture of offence, wasn't it? Of insult even. The thing about foot washing though was that it wasn't a very pleasant task. A very menial task, actually. Um, And it was given to the lowest of low slaves. Some Jewish sources actually um, say that Jewish slaves weren't even allowed to wash feet because it was beneath them. It was left to the Gentile slaves. Such was the view of foot washing. If anyone other than a slave sought to take on that task, like a wife for a husband or a, a child for a parent or a pupil for a teacher, it was seen as an extreme act of devotion. There's actually records in Jewish history um, where there was a case where by one wife actually wanted to wash her husband's feet and the husband said, no, I'm not going to let you do that. And she actually took him to court. To say, I have the right of showing this devotion to my husband and claiming that right of devotion and love and honour. I don't know how many wives here would take their husbands to court to fight for the privilege of washing their feet or, in fact, husbands taking their wives to court for the same thing. But you get the gravity, you get the idea of what this meant for the people of Israel. So foot washing was this degrading, lowly task. So when Jesus, the teacher, the rabbi, the the leader, the Lord, 
takes off his outer garment, wraps a towel around him, and starts washing the disciples' feet. John's, James, Andrew's. As he goes around the group, one after the other, washing their feet, and takes on the role of the lowliest servant. This was, this was outrageous. This was awkward. <laughs> this was wrong. We often give Peter a pretty hard time for his um, objections um, to Jesus wanting to wash his feet. But that was appropriate. Completely appropriate that Simon Peter would say, Whoa, you're not going to do this for me, are you? That's not your role. But Jesus here is not just giving them an object lesson of humble service. He's actually teaching them something. Teaching them something far more meaningful about what he had come to do. He was the son of God, but he wasn't just the son of God. He was going to be the saviour, the redeemer, the one who would rescue all. You see, there's another occasion that foot washing actually occurred in the nation of Israel, in their day-to-day, week-to-week practice. And that was around the religious act of cleansing. You see, the Jews washed their hands and their feet in hot water in preparation for the Sabbath. In preparation for their day of worship of God. It was part of their ritualistic cleansing rituals. And it signaled that they were getting ready to meet with God. They were washing all the filth, all all the, um, the, the dirt and the stains and everything else off their hands and their feet. And it became symbolic for them um, washing their lives clean of sin. This, this spiritual act of cleansing. And Jesus is actually tapping into this ritualistic act as he washes his disciples' feet. You can see that in verse 8 where he says, Unless I wash you, you have no part of me. See, what's ultimately important for us to understand here um, is not just the benefit of us having clean, pretty, nice-smelling feet, um, but the spiritual symbolism of us being pure before a holy God. And Jesus' washing is, is, is more than just a hygienic thing or a social thing as we sit and recline and eat. It's more a salvation thing. And what are the implications of that that comes from Jesus' washing? See, when Jesus uses this word part, it comes from the Greek word meros, um, which is used all the way through the Greek Old Testament um, when it talks about the promised land being divided up between the people of Israel. See, the promised land was part of the inheritance that was given to the people of Israel. It had been promised by God as part of their inheritance. And the people here were part of the God's people because of what they'd received. This was an indication, this was a sign of who they were in God's eyes. His sons and his daughters, his, his special set-apart children. But now Jesus is redefining this promise a little bit. Jesus is saying the, the promise of being one of God's children is not having a part of the land. 
It's not having a plot where you can grow some vegetables or some grain or something like that. It's actually a relationship. It's actually being part of Jesus. A relationship, a union with Christ as part of his body. See, the action and the ultimate evidence of Jesus' death is is highly symbolic for us. This is Jesus' act of cleansing through his death that washes us, that cleans us, that allows us to be invited into a relationship with him. When we surrender our lives to him, when we confess our sins, when we repent of those sins, there's, there's this washing that takes place, there's this cleansing that takes place, and our sins are dealt with. The Bible often uses this language of washing when it talks with dealing with sins. In Psalm 51 too, it says, Wash away all my iniquity, all my sins, my wrongdoings, and cleanse me from my sin. Wash them away, Lord. In 1 Corinthians 6, 12 or 11, where Paul is contrasting those who sin with those who, who have been redeemed, he says, But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so when our sins are forgiven or when they are washed away, we're given this new status. We're given this new position before God. A status of being right before God. Innocent. Clean. The Bible's word for it is justified. Just as if we'd never ever sinned. We're acceptable and accepted by God. We're welcomed into a relationship with Him as sons and daughters. That is the promise. That is the promise. Not land, but being one in Christ. Galatians 3.28 There is neither neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We are part of his body. 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is part of it. See, being a part of Christ's body or fellowship and therefore fellowship with God is the promise. That's our hope for eternity but also for today. Now, remember when I, I said that foot washing was used as a weekly religious ritual to prepare the people and the priests to meet with Jesus or to meet with God? Jesus is using this here as an object lesson to show that cleansing from sin is actually still required to have this relationship with God. You can't approach God unless you are clean. You can't approach God. You can't be a part of his body, a part of what he's doing unless you are clean. But the difference here is that Jesus' cleansing is going to be a once for all. The people of Israel had to come every week, wash their hands, wash their feet, get ready for the Sabbath. But Jesus and the cleansing that he was going to be offering this week as he was coming to die on the cross for us was going to be a once and for all. And Peter, bless his soul, didn't grasp this. Um. Jesus said he understanding would only really come fully after his death, after everything had fallen into place. But being part of 
what Jesus was doing sounded pretty good to Peter. And so Peter, the passionate one, has always said, well, if, if, if I have to be washed to be part of you, well, okay, then what? don't just wash my feet, wash my hands, wash my head, wash the full part of me, my, my whole body. It's refreshing, isn't it, when someone wants all that Jesus can give them, just wants, wants it all. We love that. But Jesus' response is interesting. He says, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not all of you. Now, when you look back into the Bible and its, its formation, there seems actually to be, um, in some of the manuscripts used by translators, a, a later addition into this passage that wasn't there in some of the original manuscripts. And so not all the Greek manuscripts that we use to put our Bible together have the words feet in verse 10. And so the original reading perhaps might actually be more likely a person who is bathed does not need to wash. Meaning, if we've been cleansed by Jesus, we don't need to continually come for further cleansing. You see, when Jesus died on the cross to cleanse us, his cleansing, his washing, his forgiving was total. It was complete. And we stand before God holy, perfect, innocent. See, the, the cleansing that Jesus offers is enough. It's enough for a relationship with God. The work of Jesus is enough. We don't need to keep coming back and back and back and back to get more and more cleansing because when we ask Jesus to forgive us for our sins, it is done completely, fully, comprehensively, eternally. If we are perfect and holy by that one act of Jesus dying on the cross, we don't need to come again and again and again seeking to be washed or cleansed. And that provides us with incredible comfort, doesn't it? Some people, particularly um, some of our, our brothers and sisters brought up in the Catholic tradition, worry that they need to actually ask forgiveness for every single thing that they do wrong. And so confessional is really important, as are the last rites, because you need to have that confession on your deathbed as you breathe your last breath so that you could make sure that you are completely absolved, that forgiven of everything that you've done so that you can enter heaven with a clean slate. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that Jesus' death covers all of your sins. The big ones, the little ones, the known ones, and the secret ones. The past ones and the future ones. Jesus, by his death and his cleansing work, has dealt with them all. Is that encouraging? Does that give us hope? You're not really excited about it. <laughs> I think it does. I really think it does. Because Jesus' death and his sacrifice for us is sufficient. And we can rest on the fact that when we come to him in repentance and faith, he deals with our, our mess of our lives. He deals with it. 
completely and forever. Does that mean we, we don't need to confess our sins? That we don't need to come and say sorry? Well, no. Look, if we offend someone, if we sin against someone, it's just plain courtesy that we apologize, isn't it? We, we come to them and say, Lord, oh, I've stuffed up again. I apologize. I, I, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I did wrong. But it's not as much about being forgiven as it is about a relationship. If a son or a daughter sins against their father or their mother, the father or their mother doesn't disown them. In actual fact, if they're um, a good parent, they will actually forgive them because they are still their son and daughter. But the relationship will remain damaged. It will remain broken until there is actually an acknowledgement of the wrongdoing, of the hurt that was caused. And so regular confession is important for us. But it's not about coming and gaining forgiveness because that has already been achieved, but it's about acknowledging the hurt and the harm and restoring the relationship. Foot washing is important. Cleansing is important. Have you been cleansed? Have you been forgiven? Have you allowed Jesus to come and, and wash you clean of your sins that once and for all? Jesus then shifts gears a little bit. He's finished washing his disciples' feet, gone round the room, and he, he puts on his cloak again, and he s takes his place at the table once again. And then he points back to his act, and he says to his disciples, I want you to repeat it. He says in verse 13, You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. Now that I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than their master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. And Jesus here is clearly urging his disciples to, to be servants of others, just like he was that evening. But not just servants that serve when there is something to be gained, or not just servants um, serving those who actually deserve our service and our honour, but servants of those who are lower than us, who don't deserve anything, who cannot repay us back with any favours. And it's a pretty clear illustration of what Jesus has done here, isn't it? When I was a pastor at a church, it was very much like Birkdale Baptist or Brackenridge Baptist. It was down at Birkdale. Um, and we had a multi-purpose facility, much like we have here. Um, and in the auditorium, we used to um, set out and pack up the chairs for every week, just like we do here. Um, and every ministry needed a slightly different setup. And so I, I um, tried to instill the culture of servanthood into our church, whereby every ministry would actually pay it forward, and they would set up the auditorium for the next ministry that was going to come in so that they could walk in and it was ready for them. The youth group often felt as though they got the raw end of the, the stick because they had to set all the chairs up after Friday night youth group because the next thing coming in was typically Sunday morning, which needed all the chairs out. Um, but every now and then, I'd come in on a Sunday morning expecting all the chairs to be out 
and they weren't. Because something else had happened in between. Maybe there was a private event hire or something like that Saturday night or or something had gone on and there were no chairs out and I came in half an hour or an hour before the service expecting to just get into my routine of preparing for the sermon or the service or what was going on and I'd have to set all the chairs out by myself. Well, actually, my kids helped me. Thank you, Elise. It's amazing what a slurpy economy can achieve with kids. Um. But, but you know, there were times when I came in and the chairs were not put out that I felt really put out, really annoyed, because that wasn't my job. I was supposed to be preparing everything ready for a Sunday service and an experience and worship of God and everything like this, and I had to put out all the chairs. We're all called to serve, aren't we? Even when we think it's far below our station. And I'm sure we can all think of examples, many, where we actually don't live up to Jesus' example. And where we think it's below us to do things. The disciples' brains, I think, by this time were being stretched by Jesus' actions in washing their feet. Their brains were about to be exploded in a couple of days when they see their master being crucified. But Jesus wanted his disciples to serve, even the lowly. But his next act of dying on the cross showed that he wanted them to also serve and love sacrificially and inclusively. A sacrificial servant is what Jesus was calling his disciples to do. That's what Jesus was. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, Mark tells us in Mark chapter 10. And and this is how he wants his disciples to live, his followers. The greatest to be like the youngest. The first actually to position themselves as the last. The last to be positioning as the first. Humble service is the hallmark of a Christian's life. And a mature follower is is someone who's not scared of getting their hands dirty. Because the realization is that an encounter with God and an incredible benefit on our behalf will motivate us to action beyond what is sensible normal, socially acceptable even. And we will willingly take on that act as a humble, sacrificial servant. Some of you know Andy Collar. Um, Andy is a a pastor, one of our Baptist pastors. He was um, our Baptist World Aid rep for 11 years in Queensland. Um, But six years ago, he finished up his work with Baptist World Aid. He's a lovely, lovely guy. Um, Andy, I've got so much time for Andy, but Julie, his wife, unfortunately had early onset dementia. While Andy was doing fantastic work in serving um, our our state and our churches and, and bringing people's awareness to the needs of people worldwide, he gave up his role to become the full time carer for Julie. Even though Julie is now in a high care facility and almost totally 
unaware of Andy's presence, Andy still goes up there each night to care for her to feed her dinner. Two weeks ago, Andy posted this on Facebook. He said, Visiting Julie is getting harder. Last night I saw blood spots on her sheet. I took her protective sleeve off her arm and, and saw multiple puncture wounds where she had been biting her arm. Together with the wonderful nurse, we applied three layers of protection. Tonight, the same wonderful nurse and I saw the damage Julie had done to layer one. We all know that Julie will bite at her left arm but are frustrated because we can't stop it. Then as I was feeding her dinner, she turned and looked at me, totally blank face. The lights were not even on. Dear Lord Jesus, take my beautiful wife to be with you. She'll be so much better off with you. Gee, I will miss her, but I want what is best for her. Doesn't that break your heart? But here is a wonderful illustration of the two things we've just been speaking about this morning. Andy, a wonderful illustration, example of, of a servant, a sacrificial servant, serving Julie in her, the most menial of tasks, where there's not an earthly sense, no, no, no reward at all to be got from this. That's what being a servant is. But did you hear Andy's words of faith and hope? When Julie does breathe her last breath on this life, she will be with Jesus, her Lord and Saviour. She has been cleansed because Jesus has died for her and she has accepted his cleansing work. She won't have to have a deathbed confession last rites even if she did she wouldn't be there to even know what to pray it's not going to do her any good whatsoever but she doesn't need it because God's washing has cleansed her from all her unrighteousness for once and for all and she is a part of Christ's beautiful body a very special part and one day she will be restored. We have this hope, don't we? That she'll be restored to her full faculties and will enjoy eternity with her Lord and her Saviour, with Andy, with us, her brothers and sisters, forever singing hallelujah to our Lord and Saviour. I wonder today, how is God asking you to be a foot washer? Where are you being asked to take your coat off? To kneel down before someone and serve them. Getting your hands dirty. But maybe more important, I want to ask you today whether you've been cleansed. Whether you have come to that point of repenting of your sinfulness. We, we are all sinners Every single one of us. And we've all got to come to that point of saying to Jesus, I need you to wash me clean. I can scrub my own feet. I can scrub my own hands. It's not going to do one iota of good to my internal spiritual nature. I need Jesus, you to come and you to clean me. We're coming into Easter. 
the celebration of Jesus' death and resurrection. And on that cross, Jesus died to pay the penalty that was owed because of the things I've done wrong and the things you've done wrong. He wants to come and wash you clean. No matter what you've done, he knows it and he's still willing to wash it all away. Have you done that? Are you clean before a holy God? I'd like us to close this morning by just spending some time in prayer. So just close your eyes as we pray. And I want to lead you us in a prayer today. If you have never come to Jesus to ask him to clean you, to wash you, I want to pray a prayer that you can repeat after me in your own mind. You don't have to pray it out loud. A prayer acknowledging our need of cleansing. Asking Jesus to forgive us and cleanse us. And if you've never done this, I want to invite you this morning to do this. If you're at home on the live stream or here in person, I want to offer you the chance to pray along with me today. You could pray something like this. Lord, today, I acknowledge that I need cleansing. I've sinned against you and others many times in the past by my attitudes and my actions. I know that I'm not perfect and never will be. And that's what keeps me from a relationship with you. Lord, I'm sorry. I want to confess my failings to you. I need your cleansing. I believe you died for me. You took the punishment I deserved. I believe you are offering to wash me now clean. And so I confess to you that I am a sinner today. Needing to be clean please come and wash me and change me so that I might be like you a humble servant of others and you for the rest of my life Amen I want you to keep your eyes closed and heads bowed And for those of you who might have prayed that prayer with me, I'd just like to say that God is faithful. And he's just. And he promises that if you've confessed your sins, he has forgiven you. He has purified you from all unrighteousness. That's his promise. And he doesn't break promises. But if you've prayed that prayer this morning, maybe for the first time, I want you to do one more thing. 
I think it's really important for you to do something physically to declare the step you've made. And I'd love to make sure that we can connect you with the leaders of this church after the service so that they can continue to support you, continue to help you figure out what all of this means for you moving forward. So if you prayed that this morning, while everyone else's eyes are closed and heads are bowed, I just want you to raise your hand high in the air and then put it back down. Is there anyone that prayed that this morning? Thank you. Thank you. The angels are celebrating. The angels in heaven are celebrating here today. Lord, we thank you for this story. It's a true story. But it's a story we love to tell about who you are and what you've done for each and every one of us. Lord, as we go, help us this week to look for opportunities to be servants. Help us to look for opportunities to to make a difference in others' lives as you have made a difference in our life. And we would all pray this. And everyone said... Amen. Thank you this morning. As we approach Easter, let's celebrate all that Jesus has done for us. And how about we invite someone to come with us next week to hear about God's life-changing gospel. Amen.